you turn again to the first chapter of the book of Colossians as we pick up and continue our, our series now in this amazing book. We'll pick up in verse 7. Uh, after we take a look back just a moment because we rather rushed through a couple of things as we finished last time we were together. And I want to read from verse 5 to remind you of the setting. And it says there in verse 5, this gospel that we preach, this message that Peter preached, that very solitary and single message that Jesus Christ alone is the one name under all of heaven whereby any man may and must be saved. That gospel, because of the hope, it says in verse 5, Colossians 1, which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And so your Bible preaches a solitary message. It begins in Genesis chapter 1, continues all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. There's a solitary message that Jesus Christ came into this world that the world through him would be saved. And it even begins with him involved as the creator God in chapter 1. And so Jesus, the heart of the gospel, which has come to you, as it does also into all of the world, and is bringing forth fruit. People are getting saved day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour. People coming to faith in, in the one who can save Jesus. As it is also among you since the day that you heard and knew of the grace of God in truth. There is a divine truth. You've heard it. That's the message that saves it's not the message of church. It's not the message of denomination. It's not the message of social change. It's the message of the gospel that saves. It is the gospel alone that can do that. And it's not a complex system of stories and allegories and knowledge that you need to take in. It is a very simple message that Jesus Christ, God's only son, came to this earth and died so that men might have a right relationship through believing in him. And because of that right relationship that we could spend eternity with God. And it is from there that verse 7, which we now turn our attention to, as you also learn from Epaphras. And so you can see that what Paul is saying here is, look, this is not... Uh, in, in a vacuum, there's, there's a central thought here, and that central thought is this gospel that Epaphras is teaching is how you become a disciple. Because he's now going to turn his attention to being faithful ministers in that like kind. Our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So as Paul starts this book off and as he says that this young pastor Epaphras is going to be bringing this gospel message it, it is that central fact that we start with and so very often people get the wrong impression about church it's like church is about some kind of group or some association look church all church every church is to be about Jesus Christ and the word of God that's what church is actually about all the rest of these things we do because we fellowship and we want to have ministry where we're effective and we can work. But the central reason that we gather together as the church 
is to study God's word, to have the gospel imparted to people, and then we spread that gospel wherever we go. And so I want to, again, just draw your attention to these four central points that we saw last time. It centers on the person of Jesus Christ. There is no question about whom the gospel is about. It, it again, it's so simple, and yet church in general has a tendency to make it complex. We're centered on Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen? If Jesus Christ isn't Lord, then Jesus Christ it may not even be Savior to you. He has to be the full package. Remember that. Because if there is no change in your life, at the very best, you're losing your assurance that anything actually ever happened. So I want the Lordship of Jesus Christ to affect my life. I want to be transformed. I want to be changed. I don't want to be the same person that I was yesterday. I want there to be conviction of sin and of righteousness. And so it centers on Jesus. The second thing, it's the word of truth. And it means that God can be trusted, his word can be trusted, what we know about Jesus can be trusted. It's not just a bunch of ideas from a bunch of people who got together and they came up with some kind of theological understanding and they passed that along. It is the word of truth. God spoke by holy men of old as they wrote those words down. It was not men writing, it was God writing using their fingers. It's the word of truth. It is absolute. And we live in a world today that does not like absolutes. Amen? We live in a world, everything's negotiable. You know, whatever truth is to you, that's what many people believe it is. We are existential in the way that we philosophize. We look at our world through the lens of, if it's okay for me, it's okay for me. It doesn't even need to be okay for you, but it's okay for me. So thereby, it is okay. Look, we deal in truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. His word is true. And the counter to that is Satan is a liar. So on one hand you have truth, on the other hand you have the lies of the enemy. A third thing, and praise God for it, it's the message of grace. Amen? The gospel is the message of grace. That's why we're going to the book of Romans on Thursday nights. We're going to be finishing up Revelation in a couple of weeks. And we're moving on to the gospel of grace. Because it's God's unmerited favor towards us. It's him saying, look, you can't solve your own problems. I'm going to solve your problems for you. I'm going to send Jesus into the world. The world through him would be saved. You can't do it. I'll fix it. All you need to do is believe in him. And here's why that's, a, that's important. And it was the fourth point that we looked at last time. It's for the whole world. And I wanted to ask you a question. If you take John 3.16 and ask yourself a simple question, if you were to give a gift that would be suitable for the whole world, what would you give? God gave his only begotten son, who was God incarnate in human flesh. You see, a lot of people, maybe you'd give books. People who are intellectuals, they like books. So you give a book. So you give a book. There are people who can't read, amen? So it wouldn't work for the people who can't read. How about education? We talk a lot about education. Education's a good thing, by the way, and people should all have equal access to it. But education isn't something that's universally beneficial. You, you talk to someone who hunts seals in the Arctic, if they need an education on how to kill a seal, they're going to tell you, no, probably not. And they're perfectly happy with their life. And so education isn't universally necessary for all peoples. 
How about foods? You ever looked at how many restaurants there are in the South Bay? We all don't like the same thing. So it isn't, well, if you just eat this kind of food, everybody's going to be okay. Clothing. Look, we're, we're here. You have people who live elsewhere. You know, we dress like this up in Alaska. You're going to freeze to death pretty quick. So it's, it's not things that we can give. to. It's not money because you know what? There are cultures, believe it or not, there are cultures that don't use and don't need money. And there's a lot of them. They have no need for it. Homes. We have people all over the globe that have no homes, and they are okay with that. And so Jesus Christ is God's answer to the whole world because the one thing that every last one of us needs is God's grace through Jesus Christ. It's a universal gift. And so these four things form the backdrop of what's going to to happen next. You see, you know, we don't need flat screen TVs. We just have them. We don't actually need cars. We just have them. I wish we didn't need jobs, but we have them, you know. And so God steps into our our time and space continuum, and, and he says, look, here's what every last one of you needs. You need a Savior. And you need the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so in that light, verse 9 picks up for us, and we now find these three very powerful prayer requests that are given by the Apostle Paul. And let's just look at them in our remaining time. Verse 9 says, And for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, what did they hear? They heard the gospel message. Since the day they heard the gospel message, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And so he's now going to give us three things. The first of which, he prays for spiritual intelligence. He isn't just praying for head knowledge. Okay, Let me make that really clear. There's a lot of people who speak Christianese who have all kinds of head knowledge. They can quote you Bible chapter and verse and they're not even saved. They don't know the Lord. I've talked to lots of them. I got into a a fairly heated debate with some folks from Oxford, actually. They were here visiting, wanted to, you know, well, let's talk about it. And they went through all of these things, and at the end of the day, admitted they did not believe that the gospel message had any bearing on mankind. And they knew it well. They knew what it was, but they did not believe it. And so Paul prays for spiritual intelligence, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. You see, there's all kinds of intelligence in our world. It's important that you have spiritual intelligence, not just intelligence in general. Believer, we have all we need in Christ Jesus. Did you know that? Education is wonderful, it's great. If if you're going to college, praise the Lord, do well. But you need spiritual intelligence because without that spiritual intelligence, all the rest of the things that you know, you will not be able to use correctly because they must be viewed in the context of God's will for your life and how God's going to use you. And so he says, look, you need spiritual intelligence. The Holy Spirit teaches us how to submit to the will of God. 
That's not easy sometimes, amen? Any of you ever get messed up on, on that point? Just saying, I do. And I'm not trying to be overly transparent. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes you kind of buck against what God wants to do in your life, amen? It's like, well, I don't really want to be nice to that person, Lord. After all, they're, you know, they're, they're you know who they are, Lord. Isn't that exactly how it goes? You're like, you have this little debate with God? And he's saying, no, you just go be nice. No, I'm not going to do it, God. You know what they said. You know what they did. I don't have to be nice to them. They haven't been nice to you. You ever use that one? And yet the Lord is saying, be good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you for his name's sake. You, You see, knowing God's will is knowing God's word. When you know God's word, you can more adequately understand that spiritual intelligence that we all need to have. You know, when we first come to Christ, we're kind of like freshman college students. It's really kind of an interesting thing, teaching at the Bible college for so many years. It's interesting how those incoming, that incoming freshman class always thinks they know everything. And it's kind of like their first term papers, like overly long, unbelievably wordy. They're trying to impress everybody with their understanding of God's word. And then they realize that even though they can articulate it on paper, they haven't got a clue how to put it into practice. And that's where we need help. We need spiritual intelligence. We need wisdom to be able to take those things that we know and then use them for God's glory. It's a beautiful picture for us. And we need to understand what the Lord wants for us. You see, his general or revealed will is found in his word. Some people will say, well, I I don't know about that. I always tell them, look, the more you know this, the easier the other questions are. If you don't know this, if you can't pick up your Bible and say, you know, I know what God's word says about that subject. Because if God has spoken about it, he's already told you his opinion. So I know he values life. I know he hates drunkenness. People come, they try and explain their drunkenness to me. Well, you know, I just feel it's a liberty. I said, well, maybe you have a liberty, but you don't have the liberty to do what God told you not to do. And so the more you know this, you can eliminate a lot of bad decisions. Amen? Amen? That's his general will. That's spiritual intelligence. So the more you know the word of God, the better equipped you are to know the will of God. That's how you begin to walk in the things of the Lord. But very often people just want to skip that. He says, look, I, 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 well, I need the higher knowledge. No, you might want to stick to the basics first before you move on. That's why in college you have those required courses, right? Uh, among them are fairly high. You need to actually be able to articulate your views in English because texting you can't do with your professor. Why is that? Because it's essential to the foundation of all the other things that you'll do. And the same is true with the Word of God. If you know the Word of God, it's foundational to walking in the Spirit. It's foundational to knowing the will of God. You must know the Word of God to walk in the ways of God. And so he says spiritual intelligence. Number two, he prays for practical obedience. Now, I want you to just hover on this for a second. Practical obedience is one of the most difficult things that we deal with on a daily basis because God actually does have an opinion on most things in your life. And that is expressed to us in the way that we use 
wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge. In other words, you have the spiritual knowledge. You've studied the Word. You've prayed. God's imparted to you. And now you've got to do something with it. Isn't that where the problem comes in? A lot of people have theoretical understanding. In other words, they even know what God's Word says. But when it comes to actually putting it in practice, well, it doesn't apply to me. We need to have practical obedience that says, God, what you said, I will do. You see, that's how you get those other two areas, the walk and the work. You see, you take the wisdom, you apply it to your walk, and you apply it to the work because you've studied the Word, four W's for you. That makes it easy, right? You take the Word, you apply it in wisdom, then you can walk with God, you can work for God. But if you don't have those things in the right order then all of a sudden you're trying to walk without wisdom. You're trying to work without having understanding. You need to get a hold of the Word of God so that it can be applied in wisdom so that you can walk with the Lord and then work for God. That's practical obedience. We, we We have an axiom that we use, the cart before the horse, right? you got to have the cart behind the horse. So you need to know what God wants you to do before you can do it. And if you want to know in the greatest way that you possibly can, just study His Word. And as you study His Word, then you can apply the principles that you find there. And as you apply those, you eliminate all these little subtleties because you know what? God's Word speaks to what you need to know for life and godliness. It declares that itself. So all of a sudden, all those things that once were problematic for you in understanding, you now have understanding because you understand God's Word. And so you can practically apply it. It's practical obedience. It affects your daily life. Can I tell you that if you declare that you have a relationship with anyone or anything about anything, and it doesn't change your life, then one would say, how deep is that relationship? Amen? I think most people could agree with that. It's like if I tell you that I've been to college... And and I tell you I have this degree, and yet I'm completely ignorant and devoid in my life of any semblance of understanding that that is actually something I know, then you would say, well, I wonder if we went to school. The same is true in your walk with the Lord. When you say you're a Christian, and it does not affect your life, you're going about your life exactly as a heathen unbeliever would, then you should be looking at your life going, I wonder if I really have a right relationship. We call that assurance of salvation. And I'm not questioning whether you're saved. I'm saying if you have a genuine relationship that has resulted in practical obedience, that practical obedience should affect your life. And all of a sudden, you're living differently, amen? Some of those decisions you would have made one way, you're now making the other way, aren't you? Those relationships that you might have been in, you now say, "Mm, that's not for me as as a child of God. Practical obedience. Look, we have to have God work in us. He's got to make us as workers. He must make us as workers before he can do work out of us. Amen? He's got to work in us to work out of us. If he hasn't worked in us, then he's not really going to be able to work out of us. And we look at this in in a sense, and let me just share share with you. This is an easy way to understand it. One of the reasons if you're studying medicine that you end up doing, after you've gone to school, you do a residency. You go spend time in a hospital with doctors and nurses and and technicians, and and you watch them work, you work with them. It's hands-on. You see, that's discipleship. 
And the reason that you do that is because there is a practical application of the knowledge that you got when you were in school. And without that, you've got all this stuff up here, but you don't know what to do with it here. And that's a picture of us as disciples who have received the gospel. God's working in us. His word is alive. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I need to know what to do with that. That's where you all come in in one another's lives, and that's what church is for. It's for fellowship and discipleship. We hang out together, we work in each other's lives, and all of a sudden, I now know how to do that. When that situation comes up and someone comes to me for counsel, I sat with somebody in a counseling session, I go, oh, that's what that's for. Otherwise, it's just up here, and it doesn't reach here. So that practical obedience, and then finally, he prayed for moral excellence. Can I tell you this is lacking in our country? It's lacking in the church. Moral excellence. Notice what he says. He calls them verses, check this out, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, verse 11 says, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. In other words, those who are set apart to bear the light. That is moral excellence. That's someone who's so different you look like Jesus. That's someone who bears the light in such a way that when someone sees you, they see Jesus. They talk to Jesus. They get instruction from the Lord. It's moral excellence. You see, it's counter to the world. Our world is a mess. Amen? It's kind of going sideways. Matter of fact, it's going backwards. Matter of fact, it's going downhill fast. You're the counter to that. And we need people who love the Lord who are going to be morally excellent. You see, that wisdom, that conduct should always be related to our character. What does more damage to the church than anything else? It's when pastors fall. Amen? When pastors fall, that's, doesn't that just absolutely wreck the church because all those people that have listened what happens is when that moral excellence is not there all of a sudden they're going i wonder if any of this is real if that's the result of walking with jesus and being a pastor and that's what happens i wonder if the jesus he preached is real moral excellence is absolutely essential to our character as believers personal character flows out of us That's God's power working through us. And in fact, he uses a couple of words for energy here. And you you might notice them as we're being with all power and being empowered. Those two words are different. And one is dunamis, which is that stored energy, if you will. And, And one is kratos, and that's manifested power. One is the power that's available to you, and one is the power that you're actually using. We need to have both. I need to have God's energy stored up by the Spirit in me, and then I need to be using it as well. I don't want to just be a vessel that sits around, i got all kinds of power. I want to be using that power. And in using that power, I become an agent for change for the kingdom. You, you see, I want to have God's will and way done in my life in such a way that I'm effectual. Actually get something done. But you know what? We're not going to get anything done if we're just like the world. The world's going to look at us and go, why would I want to be like you? 
you're just religious, but your character's the same as mine. My character is supposed to be different so that when the world sees me, they understand there's something different about me. Not what I say, but what I do and how I live and the way I conduct myself and where I go and what I do with my time and my talent and my treasure. And so, family of God, all of this is to say, that's the power of our inheritance. We, we can't be focusing on our problems. We can't be losing our joy. We can't be bouncing all over the map. We need to be solid in who we are as believers. We need to have spiritual intelligence. We need to have practical obedience. And we need to have moral excellence. And if we'll do those things, if, if we live our lives that way, that's the gospel lived out of us. We've received it. We've believed it. We've been changed. We've been transformed. But now we have an opportunity to be those saints who are bearing the light. That's how we bring other people to that place of understanding that the Lord is infinite in his power and in his grace and in his mercy and in his glory and he can do all things and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. When they see it real in us, that good news becomes that first step in unleashing the power of prayer that we might have these things, spiritual intelligence, practical obedience, and moral excellence. But we've got to get the first step right, which is coming to Jesus, and then the rest of the things flow forth from an understanding of his word that's lived out as we walk, as we worship, and as we work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the way that you have blessed us. Lord, and we pray for these three areas of our lives, Lord, for spiritual intelligence. Would we know your word? Lord, would it be alive in us? Would it be so much a part of us that it's not able to be distinguished where your word stops and we begin? God, we pray for that practical obedience. God, just in our daily living, would we be attentive unto those things which are in our hearts and minds, Lord, working out through our hands. And Lord, beyond that, would our character, the things that we are in the quiet of the day, be of moral excellence. We ask that you'd bless us, that you'd encourage us, that you'd strengthen us, we thank you for your word, which is powerful and able to change us. And Lord Jesus, mostly we thank you for your grace. Lord, your incredible grace that has saved us, the faith that you've given us to be able to believe. We praise you for it. We thank you. We bless you. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen.